But the Bitcoin rumor mill is just flowing with tweets and posts that the Ledger co-founder, I think it's Nicholas Baca, he's leaving the company after that whole recovery feature scandal that we talked about on the show. Seems like just things haven't settled well and the co-founder is out. Is this because he was the party pushing for this seed recovery feature that would take your Ledger wallet seed off of the hardware device and then send it to custodians who would kind of back it up or something? I mean, you got to figure it was a pretty olive company effort to do all the engineering and the planning, but maybe he's the fall guy. Maybe he was the champion of the idea, the owner of the project. And I guess this is the company trying to signal, hey, we we get it. But it just seems like the, the damage to the ledger reputation is pretty much done because I was reading a bunch of the follow up in the discussion and everybody is just done with ledger. I don't know if this is enough. I think we should review what happened. And I feel like this is a great crypto example of like a Linux situation, which you've talked about before, which is changing the current product to match what we think users will be like in the future. Because my understanding of a hardware wallet, which is really a signing device, is that cryptocurrency offers a very different security model than assets in a bank account. Because instead of trusting an institution made of people governed by laws to protect your assets and do what you think is right by you. We forego all of that convention. And now I can send my Bitcoin or any crypto that uses a, uh, a signing scheme like this to any destination, as long as I have the key that unlocks that address on a blockchain. And now the challenge becomes, how do I keep a digital secret safe? And it turns out that this is pretty difficult because general purpose consumer hardware, uh, phones and computers are complicated machines with millions of lines of code inside of them. And so there are all sorts of exploits that can give attackers access to your device and then they can scan it for things that look like cryptographic secrets and then try and steal your, your funds. And so the hardware wallet is a specialty purpose computer that is only designed to protect a private key. And therefore, there's not a lot of attack surface. And ideally, there's no way to get a private key off of the device. So the ledger feature of this kind of seed recovery, seed backup, you know, online seed, whatever, it seemed very contrary to what I understand the entire purpose of a hardware wallet to be is. And it kind of felt like, yeah, but we're building this for the next 100 million users who are going to be different than the early crypto adopters. Do you think I have that right? Or is that how you would characterize it? Yeah, I think you nailed it. And it's hard because maybe they're right in 10 years. Maybe they're just not right today. And so as a company, of course, they're trying to figure out where the market's going to be at. So that way they can have something ready by the time the market arrives. But just too early, boys, I suspect. And the current user base is really looking for something that is a lot more secure and doesn't have the third party risk that so many of the current systems have. And that's just a major draw to Bitcoin right now and other currencies. And so I just feel like they just missed the mark on it and they damaged the reputation. I don't think they're going to go out of business. I don't think they're going to, I think we'll be fine, but they've definitely made it clear that for people that are concerned about third party risk, Ledger wasn't the company for them. They did a whole company wide initiative to make this possible. It really, it's not just one person and you don't just fix that kind of thinking by just removing a single person. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 8th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with... With me, it's Chris. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. On today's show, we are going to discuss a change in accounting standards that affects the way that U.S. corporations 
can hold cryptocurrency and value it on their balance sheet. Might sound a little dry, but this actually probably changes the corporate demand for cryptocurrency a lot. In privacy, we're going to discuss news about a decentralized CoinJoin implementation that is using Noster, the new decentralized social media protocol. In altcoins, there is a paper about blockchain privacy and regulatory compliance written by Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, and also some Chainalysis employees. We can talk about what they're thinking about there. And then in Bitcoin education, we have a Bitcoin optech with some interesting news about a scheme for compressed Bitcoin transactions and new forms of collaborative multisig using Taproot. And then we have some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. Now, this, quote, long-awaited accounting rule change. Can I bounce off you what I think I grok from it? And then you can you can clear up what I mistook. Please. I understand that the long and short of it is, is that if a company wanted to buy Bitcoin and put it on their balance sheet, say they bought it at $40,000 during the bull run or $50,000, when the price came down to 30 or 25, when it came time to do their accounting, they had to capture that drop in value. So it would look like an asset drop 60% or whatever on their balance sheet. But then... When the market comes back and the bull run starts again and it say Bitcoin goes to 80,000, they actually couldn't capture that increase in the value. They could only capture the decreases in the value. Do I essentially have that? That's right. And I think the issue is that previous to this ruling, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were treated as intangible asset. And there is a definition in accounting, an intangible asset is something like a trademark Or there's also this accounting convention called goodwill, which I've never really understood. So you'll see a corporate balance sheet and there'll be a line and it says goodwill, $200 million. And you look at that and you're like, well, what the hell is that? So accounting has a lot of flexibility for things that are non-physical and hard to value. But I think an attempt to impose rules around intangible assets, which are obviously very ripe for accounting shenanigans, there's a practice where when an intangible asset drops in value, you can't then increase the value again. Because I think the assumption is that intangible assets are are kind of not easy to trade. The Coca-Cola trademark, while it might be very valuable, it's not really valuable to Pepsi. It's only valuable to Coca-Cola. So you can kind of imagine that if for some reason Coca-Cola had to mark down the value of their trademark, under what conditions could they mark it up again? Like it might make sense actually to not be able to mark it up again so easily. And I think that the realization here by the Financial Accounting Standards Board is that there are big companies or relatively large companies like MicroStrategy, and they are holding large amounts of Bitcoin on their books. And Bitcoin is very different than other intangible assets in that it actually trades in every market 24-7. So it's clearly very different than a trademark or goodwill because it is liquid, it is tradable, and there is a price almost every minute of the day somewhere to buy and sell Bitcoin. So I think it's a very reasonable reformulation of the rule. And I think it also will make holding Bitcoin on a corporate balance sheet much more attractive going forward. And I I don't quite understand, but I, I am led to believe that it's a big deal that the IRS sees Bitcoin as property. So companies can can do this accounting practice with things like securities to a certain degree, but there's like limits placed on what they can do with securities. Where with property, there isn't necessarily those same limits. I'm not sure. 
how this is going to sort of affect corporate accounting behavior. But I think as pleb Bitcoiners, our takeaway is that there seems to be demand from U.S. corporates for a more favorable accounting standard around holding cryptocurrency and and probably mostly Bitcoin. And so this accounting board, it's an industry association. And so it responds to the demands of the corporates who are affected by its rulemaking. You know, they can complain, they can donate money, they can do a lot of things to sort of influence these standards. And that clearly has happened because the MicroStrategy chief financial officer wrote to FASB and they criticized the original restrictions on valuing Bitcoin as an intangible asset. And obviously, MicroStrategy has every incentive to dislike those original rules because, again, it meant that buying Bitcoin was actually, from a balance sheet perspective, quite problematic for a company because it would only go down in value. Every time there was a dip, it had to be marked down, but it could never be marked up again when there was a a rise in the price. Yeah. And so every time it goes down, negative headlines about MicroStrategy or Tesla or something like that. Here's what we do know. The rules will be effective from 2025, but companies can adopt them earlier if they choose to do so. It seems like mandatory compliance for both public and private companies to adopt these rules will start for fiscal year 2025. So basically for companies, that means after December 15th, 2024, they have to have these rules in place and they must create a separate entry for crypto assets in their balance sheets. And with all of this done, there's some disclosure requirements. We know essentially Tesla buys XYZ, sells at XYZ amount. So we think roughly Tesla has X number of Bitcoin left. And MicroStrategy, we know they have this amount of Bitcoin because they publicly tell us, and then we can do the math on that amount of coin, and we don't have to follow what their disclosures say. And we do the same thing for other companies is if they publicly announce it at some point, the community does the math and knows what their holdings are worth, but that's not actually what's on their disclosures. And that should now be more in line. And I think that's going to be pretty great because we'll get a more clear-eyed capture of how much companies are actually investing in Bitcoin, at least the public ones. And I think that this is pretty interesting because it's directionally indicative of corporates are interested in holding Bitcoin. And I don't think that that's a sellout position. It's not like we're just excited for potential price pumps that might come from more demand. I think that we accept that corporations are powerful economic and political entities today. And as regular humans, we have to live in a world where corporates exist. And so <laughs> yeah, their interest in Bitcoin, we want to pay attention to that and kind of think about what the implications for Bitcoin as freedom money, as a permissionless financial system are for us. And so it looks like one, corporates are interested in Bitcoin as an asset to buy and hold on their balance sheet moving forward. And I think this is also interesting because this may drive Bitcoin development. Because last night at Seattle BitDevs, there was a conversation about how one of the killer applications of covenants, which is a new uh, sort of crop of proposed Bitcoin soft fork enhancements to add an ability to create a transaction that you can only spend that transaction in a certain pattern. And so 
one of the killer applications is you can create a vault out of uh, this kind of uh, scripting ability. And a vault is a address where when you try to spend from that address, there's a cooling off period. And it gives you the ability to monitor the blockchain. And if you see an address coming out of uh, or a transaction coming out of your wallet, you're like, hold on a second, did I send that? Have we been hacked? And there's a moment where you can kind of claw that transaction back, probably potentially to an, a different wallet. And this sort of on-chain protocol native security, that might be very, very useful in a world where there are a lot of big entities holding Bitcoin. Because if MicroStrategy could implement that security in their Bitcoin wallet, then they might not want to hold Bitcoin with Coinbase. They might say, listen, there is technical risk to managing our own keys, but it's less than the custodial risk of putting our Bitcoin into Coinbase because Coinbase could be regulated. Coinbase could go out of business. They could have internal failures. And because we have, you know, very robust on-chain security, it might make sense to just hold it ourselves. And I think in general for us plebs, entities holding Bitcoin themselves, whether they be other people or corporations, is probably better for the network, for Bitcoin, for a decentralized future than the majority of Bitcoin being concentrated in centralized custodians like Coinbase. Yeah, or an ETF, which is a Coinbase. The uh, the nice thing about this rule change, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm happy for sailors, sure. I don't, I'm really indifferent, but I feel like this makes it clear for my business, right? So it, it's not just the big businesses, but as a business that receives boosts and at some point would like to have the Bitcoin asset on the balance sheet of the business soon, this works a lot better for me, the system. And so uh, I think it's going to be good for, for all sizes and all types of businesses in the States that want to hold a little Bitcoin. And I think it just makes it open to another asset source, right? Another, I mean, businesses that want to put a little, you know, maybe instead of like a, as a small business, uh, I can't really afford to buy real estate. Like family members before me that had businesses, their company went out and bought some land. It's now worth quite a bit and they built a building on there and they're doing great. I don't have that as an option, but I can stack sats. And so uh, I would like that, you know, the portion that comes into the network, I would like it to benefit the network for a long time. So I feel I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty positive about these rule changes. I also think it's kind of funny that uh, NFTs and stable coins and wrapped tokens are not covered by these uh, new rules. Right. Those are very complicated assets, especially wrapped tokens, because often they, there's um, yeah. additional custody involved. And so would that be like um, Steeth, you know, your your derivatives from like a staked ETH? Is that a, would that be considered a wrapped token or is, what what is a wrapped token? The classic example is WBTC, which is Bitcoin sent into an exchange, I think Kraken, and then they issue this ERC-20 asset and say, hey, this represents Bitcoin on Ethereum. So, I mean, if, if it sounds like, wow, that's a really shoddy, janky way to do an asset, then then yes, I, I think it is. The board said they'll monitor the crypto market for potential future actions on those categories. But for right now, they're not touching that. Now, you put in a no BS Bitcoin announcement about Joinster. Have you looked at this? Is it live? Have you tried this yet? I'm just starting to look at it. I have not tried it yet because I'm cautious, but this is one of the realizations of Noster that I have been more excited about than, say, the social media applications. I think Noster really kind of took off as a Twitter alternative because of the timing of the Twitter takeover. But it's it's really a protocol, right? It's a relay protocol, and you could do Craigslist on there. And I've also thought it could be an ideal signaling mechanism for wallets. could be a great way for user-based wallet 
payments. You know, maybe Sparrow builds in a Noster system at some point, and I just put BDAD in there, and you know, you that's what you're known on in the Noster network, and it connects the two because you've got your wallet connected to that. I don't. I just see it as a way to make backend censorship resistant connections, and to see it now being used in a coin join implementation. Uh, this I find to be probably one of the better uses because I think the real Achilles heel of any of these types of privacy solutions is a centralized coordinator. And the beautiful thing about this is that there's no centralized coordinator. Participants have a, des- a desired output on the- that they register to the Nostra protocol. So that's it's like associated with your key. I'm not exactly sure yet. I will go through this eventually. Um, the system collects all of the interested parties, puts it all together, combines them, and then broadcasts the resulting transaction. And the people that have signed up receive it. And it looks like to be a legitimate way to do a coin join without a centralized organizer. So it's called Join STR. And we'll have a link in the show notes from the No BS Bitcoin article. And they have a diagram in there. So I kind of suggest maybe people go look at it because they show you a visual of sort of how it works. Right. And I think that the reason that um, CoinJoin has this centralized element or, or has in the past had a centralized element is that you need a place to communicate, to coordinate the coin join. And so there have been two approaches so far in Bitcoin. One is the join market approach where everybody runs a join market server, you know, which kind of has an order book and you can say, hey, I'm available to coin join with these parameters. And then you walk away from your computer and your server is running with your coin join offer. And then someone can take your offer and, and they'll often take many offers simultaneously. And so they'll coin join with 10 to 30 to 50 parties. But I, as uh, someone who's made a, an offer for my liquidity to coin join with, I'm only coin joining with them. So you can see how like um, join market is like this marketplace where you've got more passive participants who provide funds that can be co- coin joined with. And then you have these takers who sort of want privacy right now. And then they come and they coin join with a whole bunch of people. And so you need a communications protocol and you need a server running in the background to do that. What's happening with Noster is because the Noster relay network has sort of a decentralized communication network that goes through multiple relays. This is like the communication layer because on Nostra you can find people, you can uh, you know maybe create uh, uh, posts that indicate your your interest in coin join, and so you don't need a centralized server where everyone goes to organize the coin join. And the centralized model is like Samurai Wallet or Wasabi Wallet. These are entities that run an actual coin join server that all of the wallets connect to to get information about available coin joins. You could really see one day where maybe RoboSats, Noster, and Lightning are all used together. So you buy on RoboSats, maybe you know you use this joinster to do a coin join and then you send it to your Lightning wallet. Um, I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of Bitcoin use cases where we need an anonymous communications layer. Uh, I mean, I guess because most of my experience is like in a private chat. Okay, what's your what's your address? Okay, here's okay, all right, and then like doing a lot of that stuff, and it it just. I mean, that is a weak point. A chat room where you're chatting with somebody and, and exchanging your information and keys is, <laughs> well, that's a that's a footprint. That's a record. This would clean that up. Uh, yeah, because what you're saying is you want a 
piece of software to do that in a very structured, clean way where, you know, it's not like a a human managing addresses and keys is a nightmare because we can't, our brains aren't designed to look at hexadecimal strings of numbers and letters and remember them and, you know, you know, transcribe them and copy them correctly, you know, so these are things that definitely need to be automated and we just need a communication channel to do it. Another anonymous communication channel is Tor. And I was using BISC a lot this week. RoboSats had some issues. They were down for about a week. It it hurt. (laughs) But they're back up. They're fixing it. So continues on. I just feel like I can't build a dependency on BISC. There's just too many pieces of it that I'm not comfortable with. But I respect you for doing it because I think it's a a really solid way to get your Bitcoin. Um, Before we completely leave Joinster, they also have an Electrum plugin out. So if you do use the Electrum wallet, you can use Joinster to do coin joins right inside wallet, which is really nice. I think Sparrow has a pretty reasonably decentralized way of doing coin joins too. So I'm not, I I know if I, by, by complimenting this, people will assume I'm dissing on Sparrow. I am not, but I am just very, very happy to see another decentralized coin join technology come along. And one that I think probably has a lot of legs. It's worth a read. Well, Sparrow plugs into the Samurai join pool. They're just routing you to the uh, the Samurai coin join coordinator. And I just want to, I just want to, I'm hedging the, but what about Sparrow, Chris? I know, I love it. It's great. But I, I think this, you know, maybe this could be built in to Sparrow at some point in the future. I'm always coming up with things to be built into Sparrow. I should really stop, but this could be another thing I'd love to see. And on the subject of privacy, we have a paper that was contributed to by Vitalik Buterin, the, one of the founders of Ethereum, and also Jacob Illum a Chainalysis employee. And of course, Chainalysis is the blockchain surveillance company that famously in court had their head of research testify that, yeah, they can't provide any academic research that suggests that their analysis of blockchain activity is in any way scientific. It's just a bunch of heuristics. It's a bunch of best guesses, and it's being used by law enforcement to attempt to put people in jail. So not great. Chain analysis now offers, and they have for a bit, behavioral analysis, which is disgusting, right? So they're just looking at the types of Bitcoin technologies you use, the types of transactions you've historically done, and seeing if that behavior matches with behavior that they've observed. And then they can just say by that observation, well, you know, you're using this version of a wallet or something. You're, you, you, you're, you're using these types of transactions and doing these types of transactions. And it all matches up. So we think it's you, which is crazy, right? That's just, that's just, it's just so ridiculous to assume that because those couple of things match up. I mean, anybody, it could, that could be anybody, but that's one of their evidence points as well. The behavior is correct. And so you combine that with these these different transactions we have analysis on and we think we have evidence that it's this person we can we can point these on-chain transactions to this identity and it's just black magic and this paper is called blockchain privacy and regulatory compliance towards a practical equilibrium and it is in many ways a response to the US Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioning of Tornado Cat because there was really only one privacy technology on Ethereum. It was called Tornado Cash. We've talked a lot about it in the past. And it, from a technological standpoint, provided very good privacy on Ethereum. It was able to kind of wipe clean the history of Ethereum funds that went into the Tornado Cash smart contract and then came out again. But when the US government sanctioned the Tornado Cash contract, all funds that were in that contract or had touched it became tainted. And now it was very difficult to 
send those funds to an exchange to sell them or, or whatever. And so this paper is a discussion about using zero-knowledge proofs and other cryptographic technology to create kind of a privacy pool, but you also have some proofs where you can, you know, if the pool gets sanctioned or if there are sort of like legal questions, you can then take your proof and you can, and you can kind of prove two things. You can prove membership, you know, you can use cryptography to say, I can prove that my withdrawal comes from one of these deposits. So you can basically break the privacy that the protocol gives you. And and so if you get sanctioned or if there's a sanction there, you can you can take the proof and say, hey, listen, here, I'm giving up all the privacy. Now you can see the history of my funds as they move through the privacy protocol. This gives you the ability to say, you know, maybe process my deposit if I'm taking funds from a privacy pool and sending them to an exchange to sell. And then you also get an exclusion proof. So you can prove that your withdrawal does not come from a deposit. So the exclusion proof would give up less privacy, but that would be a way, like, like let's imagine Tornado Cash had these membership proofs and exclusion proofs built in. That would mean that when OFAC went after Tornado Cash, what they could do is they could sanction Tornado Cash and they could say, okay, we know some of the North Korean Lazarus group deposits into Tornado Cash. You know, we're not going to sanction you as long as you prove that your withdrawal does not come from one of those Lazarus group deposits. And so everyone else except for Lazarus group could provide a cryptographic proof that would say, hey, look, my money does not come from Lazarus group as they come out of Tornado Cash. And then OFAC could go a step further and say, you know what, it's not enough just to prove that you're not part of Lazarus group, we need you to prove which deposit you made into the protocol. And then they can show the membership proof. So it's pretty interesting. I mean, does it sound a little mind bending? I had to read it twice to sort of grok it. I guess the part that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is this zero knowledge system they have, but to still prove that the transactions came from a legitimate source. Um, that seems that seems susceptible to attack to me. But I'm reading the paper they put here, and I, I see I see they do kind of go through the technology they're using. Um, and of course, anything written by Vitalik is extremely complicated and uh, dense. But the other part that I think is always the what if scenario that it's just this is just a worth me worst case, and I suppose. But this just still seems like an area where you could whittle down over time the approved places and essentially identify people by just a lack of options. You know, but maybe ten years down the road, it's only a few handful of legitimate industry sources that are now okay to come out on the other end of this thing. And so by elimination, you kind of have a handful of potential places somebody could have got their Ethereum from initially, or, uh, you know, some something to that effect. I just, it seems like it opens yourself up to a funneling problem as these technologies become institutionalized. But uh, that, of course, is just a what if scenario. And then just as an aside, it grosses me out. And I guess this is me showing my bias, but I really don't like that Vitalik or whoever wrote this part on page two quotes Satoshi and quotes the white paper um, because it feels a little bit like affinity scamming, even though they try to debunk a little bit of what Satoshi said in there too. It's still like within the second page, they're quoting Satoshi Nakamoto and they're quoting the Bitcoin white paper. And I don't like that. It feels like they're trying to, again, put themselves as an equivalency or something. I think that Vitalik is personally interested in this technology because I believe he was burned by the OFAC Tornado Cash sanction because everybody with a lot of Ethereum probably used Tornado Cash a couple times yeah. because there's no other privacy technology on Ethereum. How do you dump on the on the DL without mixing? 
I would assume like if he wants to sell a little bit and not have it be headline news, he has to use a privacy tool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he doesn't have to sell on an exchange. He could sell peer to peer, but you would see Vitalik sending funds to an Ethereum account. And because Ethereum accounts are just a single account per person or per wallet, usually, it's pretty easy to connect transactions and individuals. So, you know, if Vitalik sent me some Ethereum and I gave him some Bitcoin, they could see that on the Ethereum side that Vitalik sent some funds to the Bitcoin dad's Ethereum account. Privacy on Ethereum is is very challenging with this account model because you do three transactions on Ethereum and we can kind of figure out who you are already, I think. I have a question for you. So uh, the technological aspect of this may be the most fascinating, but I think it's something people just have to read if they're interested. But there is a a meta conclusion of this paper, and I want to see what you think of it. It says, quote, at the end, in many cases, privacy and regulatory compliance are perceived as incompatible. This paper suggests that this does not necessarily have to be the case. If the privacy enhancing protocol enables its users to prove certain properties regarding the origin of their funds. So it seems to me that their position is we can do compliance that the establishment, the regulatory bodies, the banks will be comfortable with. Like we can have our cake and eat it too. It feels very much like a lot of inline thinking we see where Vitalik and team are very much like, well, how do we just work with the establishment? Let's not try to build something different that they will have to adapt to. Let's adapt to their needs. And they're always they're always accommodating. Um, and maybe it's good. Maybe it's a practical position. What are your thoughts? It's really interesting because when I read this headline of the paper and I saw Vitalik and chain analysis in there, I was ready to be annoyed by what they wrote. But I actually don't think I am because, I mean, they make a lot of good points in that if you are going to use a privacy technology and you can't control who the other participants in that privacy set are, then you can get into situations like with OFAC and Tornado Cash, where suddenly that anonymity set becomes a liability because someone in that anonymity set is like a target of the U.S. government and the U.S. government is ready to burn everybody in the group. And so to have the ability to sort of like selectively say without revealing all the information, oh, no, no, that's not me. I see the value in that. This also reminds me of how we've talked about the lack of financial privacy in traditional finance is currently legislated. Like there are rules about how no one's allowed to have financial privacy unless they're incredibly wealthy. You know, that's you know basically the law of the land, at least in the United States. But a large part of that is technological. Like the lack of privacy comes from banking and ledger technology where user privacy put the entity that maintained the ledger of accounts at risk for double spending. And so I think that the development of technology that protects all of the participants in the financial system from each other and allows for privacy, that's very interesting. I don't know if it leads to any change because in many ways, I think the debate around privacy is pretty bad. So you say, hey, I want financial privacy. And then you know the, the police officer looks at you and says, what do you have to hide? Or what about child predators? Or what about terrorists? And now you can't say anything because now you're defending child predator terrorists. So I don't think that this proposal privacy technology is necessarily going to change anything or change anybody's mind. But if there is the technology to do privacy in a way that allows you to selectively 
reveal yourself out of that anonymity set. I mean, that's very much in keeping, I think, with cypherpunk ethos. And yes, it's being done on Ethereum. Yes, a chainalysis person is involved. I mean, that's very, you know, that's just that's just the dirty reality, maybe. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. I do agree it's interesting. And um, I think I have two thoughts. It, it comes down, part of it is, are you just... St- anti-establishment and so anything that that proposes to cooperate with the establishment triggers you which might be the camp i'm beginning to fall into or are you a believer that the establishments can be fixed and so inevitably if they can be fixed then this is a good thing and i think if that's your outlook i think bitcoiners would embrace something like this on bitcoin because all the kyc stackers would essentially benefit from this they could still do an equivalent of a coin join or whatever but then declare i got mine from an official kyc bank or something and so yes you don't know who these are from but you know that at least they came from a kyc financial institution they weren't bought on a black market and i think the bag holders out there that have been stacking and dcaing and buying from coinbase and all the other exchanges would be incentivized to support something like this because you know they're are concerned about coin joins and whatnot. I think for those of us that are more skeptical that these institutions will be used to crack down than to benefit, I think I'm a little, those people like me are a little more concerned by it, but I think the technology is interesting if it proves out. Um, well, this is the exact kind of thing I'd, I'd love to see experimented with on a different chain, like Ethereum, and watch them experiment with this and use their technology stack, and then you know have it in production for a little while and have Bitcoiners look at that and go, you know, we could do it better over here on Bitcoin, and maybe we get something similar, and all the KYC Bitcoiners out there just love it. You know what else you're going to love? The show's over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Yep, this is my little chance here to tell you what we got going on over there. It's a podcast network that's probably right up your alley if you listen to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. And uh, every week we post a handful of organically crafted, handmade podcasts. <laughs> uh, Self-hosted 105 just came out today as we record. My buddy Alex sat down with the lead developer of Merger FS, which Alex describes as one of the sleeper technologies of Linux. Really something that I think home labbers would be into. Uh, so Self-hosted just got recently posted as well as Coda Radio um, and of course Linux Unplugged and more at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I met several Jupiter Broadcasting listeners at the Seattle BitDevs. Oh, seriously? Oh, I should go. I mean, they've been listening from the beginning. That's amazing. There were two notable news items in this week's Bitcoin Optech 267. One is about Tom Breyer's draft specification for compressed Bitcoin transactions. These transactions require you to have access to a full Bitcoin node, and they take advantage of, I guess, just really clever techniques to compress a Bitcoin transaction by, I think, around 60% so that it can be encoded using steganography or sent via very low data uh, transaction medium, like a satellite transaction or or maybe an SMS uh, text message. Uh, And of course, just for reference, uh, steganography is like the practice of kind of encoding data in, um, in like images and things to sort of like hide the fact that a transaction is even being conveyed. So this is a privacy technology. It's also a technology that could allow Bitcoiners to send transactions via very slow communication channels. But I think the, there, are, you know, there are a couple caveats. And one is that you need a full Bitcoin node with full history of the blockchain because this technology basically uses transaction IDs. Like it uses a bunch of information that 
you, you need a copy of the blockchain to look up. And, you know, compressing and converting the compressed transaction back into something that a full node can process requires uh, CPU, memory, and IO. So it doesn't seem like this is a technology that you can just use with a mobile phone. It seems like a technology, at least at this stage, where if you had a Bitcoin node on a computer, maybe a very isolated system, then you could use this to create a very small transaction and, and you know, send it via text message or you know, send it up to the Blockstream satellite or something. And then that transaction could be broadcast to the Bitcoin network via a full node somewhere else. And that seems like some promising technology, especially for the developing world or those of us who fantasize about having a node in a satellite one day. Not not saying I do, but I do. And the other privacy enhanced co-signing item is there is a project uh, Nick Farrow posted to the dev mailing list about basically a way to use a taproot threshold signature scheme, uh, like a multi-signature scheme, in a manner that the signer, one of the signers, does not know the public key of the wallet or the transaction that they're signing. So why would you want this? Well, Nick talks about a situation where you're using a service to as kind of a backup key in your multi-sig. So imagine you've got a two of three multi-sig, so you need two of the keys out of three to sign every transaction to to spend out of this wallet. And so you've got two hotkeys, and then you have like a backup key with a custodian. Let's call it Jupiter Broadcasting. And Jupiter Broadcasting will help you sign a transaction if you lose one of your keys. But now let's say the Bitcoin dad has lost one of his keys, and he wants to send a $10 million transaction. But now I take this transaction to Jupiter Broadcasting, and Chris is like, hmm, you seem to be in a bit of trouble because you can't spend without my key. You know what? I'm going to charge an additional fee now because they can see my wallet. They can see the transaction. They have the potential to get greedy or to, to monitor me or something. But with Nick's proposal, when I bring a transaction to be signed by Jupiter Broadcasting, JB has no idea what the wallet is, what the transaction is. They, I mean, they just know, okay, I'll sign this data. Here you go. So they don't have a lot of information about what I'm doing. And this preserves my privacy and it prevents, you know, situations that that might be potentially bad, you know, for me as the person who needs help uh, signing a transaction. I like this. And the uh, Optech link that we'll have in the notes has a nice, quick, like three paragraph summary of it. And uh, it's also just nice that people are thinking about all the different angles of this. So as Frost describes, Frost allows hiding the signed transaction from the service at every step of the process, from generation of an output script to signing to publication of the fully signed transaction. All the service will know is when it signed any of the data the user provided to authenticate themselves with the service. It's nice. I like that a lot. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com. You can also try sending me an X message, which sounds very cringe, at Bitcoin Dad Pod. But the best way to chat is via the show's Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details in the show notes and on to our boosts. And boosts we got, especially, uh, you know, we're getting close to episode 100. So I think people are feeling appreciative of the show. DJ via Podverse came in as our baller this week with 99,999 sats. Cross two boosts. He writes, uh, episode, 
Yeah, thank you. Ba 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 baller. Yeah, one boost was fifty thousand sats, and the other one was forty nine ninety nine nine sats. So I like it. Uh, he says, episode ninety eight. I found the uh, Joe Rez and Molly White discussions thoughtful earlier, except everyone seemed to have unquestioning acceptance of proof of work's climate fund. Maybe the CCAF updates will win over some skeptics. Maybe I don't think so, uh, DJ. But I don't think it really matters. You know, if you look at the updated information and data around Bitcoin's energy use, they're really trying to convince the investing class, people who watch Bloomberg and CNBC and and follow BlackRock. They're not trying to convince the working class. Yeah, um, I mean, the really working class doesn't have any money in this yeah. economic system, so. Right. Who cares about their opinion from a certain all the, point of view? All the messaging for them is telling them to stay in the existing system. And so I understand they don't get it because they're not the ones that are uh, targeted right now. Once people start selling to them, then they'll start turn, you know, I think changing their tune. He goes on to say that he still loves Joe, though. Um, he says on the topic of a diverse like Brexit every U.S. issue, uh, he's now a fiat maxi. Well, yeah, I think a lot of I mean, it's not that it's not that people are fiat maxis is that they live in a system their entire life. Uh, he says, I like to diversify my max options, uh, but capital controls and AML hamper it and hamper international flow. 2022 showed that the euro was vulnerable. Getting rugged by US KYC pushed me into Bitcoin. Maybe fiat maxis will change their tune when they get debanked and can't get cash. Yeah, it's going to be a moment. It's it's a reduction in services. I, I was just having this conversation with my wife. Uh, she's been you know a small business owner for 10, 12 years in our, our local community and has used a local bank that entire time. But that local bank just can't really provide simple services like being able to use your debit card outside the state. They've had to they've had to really crack down on that. There's just a lot of less things they can offer as a small bank. And she's starting to feel like it's no longer a competitive product. But a lot of the core issues aren't that bank's fault, right? They're systemic issues. Uh, and each I think each person will experience those systemic cracks in their own way. Right. Thank you so much for the baller boost. And I think that where people fall on the Bitcoin fiat energy spectrum, I don't I just don't think it's really analytical. I, I really think it has to do with, you know, just like your preferences yeah. almost. I think it it's also just like your disposition and the social milieu that you subscribe to and then the issues that milieu consider to be the most prevalent issues. And the Linux distro that you run. Like when someone runs oh gosh, what is it? It's always running Zubuntu? What's the uh, yeah, Zubuntu with the yeah. So if someone's running the XFCE desktop on Ubuntu with a black desktop and that's the only thing they want to run, like they're letting you know that they don't like change and they're not interested in like new things. That's like a big yeah, you know yeah. th- that's like the message. That's there, fine. I think. And that's I fine. mean that's that's always that's always that's there's adoption trends for that. And you know, I would make the offer if uh if if Joe uh thinks that Bitcoin is a scam or a Ponzi or whatever. I, he is more than welcome to send me the Bitcoin that I know he's sitting on. So I'll, I'll happily take it off his hand. I'd even have a conversation if we were paid in Bitcoin for it. You know, we could have a we could have a whole <laughs> debate. If we... No, I mean, I don't. I mean, if he's holding on to uh, scam money that's boiling the ocean, that's got to feel awful. I'll just I'll just no, no big deal. I'll just send it to me. I'll take it off his hands. Right. It might be unethical to hold it if you uh, if you believe it's a scam. And uh, yeah, Bitcoin lizard boosts in 50,000 sats. He was listening to episode 98, Working on Privacy. It is highly unlikely that the purported benefits of drive chains will be realized. Per the motivation section of BIP300 scam coins will become obsolete. Altcoin creators will not give up seniorage to run a Bitcoin sidechain. 
So I think that's a, that's a good argument. The status quo altcoin degen model works fine for all parties involved and doesn't require a potentially dangerous change to minor incentives. Bitcoin should continue to strive to be the best money. Devs can build wacky Rube Goldberg tokens on separate chains. Well, thank you for the boost, Bitcoin Lizard. And I think that's a you know completely legitimate view. There is concern that drive chains need a consensus change because now miners can commit to data that's happening on another chain and that might uh, you know create incentives for them to do like mev and other things that could detract from you know bitcoin transaction immutability or something like that i don't know there is a question there and many people are concerned about that and don't see the burning need for this functionality right now I guess I kind of agree in the sense that changes to Bitcoin are really hard, and it seems like this is a change that is not very popular right now, at least. Bitcoin student came in with 30,000 sats using Podverse. Value for value for the win. Thank you for the education, Dad. The hesitance is gone. The Band-Aid is ripped off. Keep up the good work. Shout out to Bitcoin student, who is a participant in our Matrix channel. Thanks for reaching out and also helping Dad learn how to pronounce oh god what was that word indictment i thought you just had a fancy pronunciation i liked it a fancy pronunciation <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> smart growth boosts in 5000 sats how much for that craigslist box shipping to 78016 oh i think i think that smart growth is referring to a dell server that i'd like to get off my hands well smart growth i will Look up the shipping and see if we can work something out. Also, why don't you just come to Linux Fest Northwest and I can give you the box there. DPG comes in with 3,333 sets. Hey, Dad and Chris, boosting to say Swan Bitcoin has been awesome. I heard you guys mention Swan months ago. It's become my go-to provider. While it is absolutely KYC to heck and back, it's been fantastic for buying Bitcoin on a schedule and then grabbing a little extra during the fire sales. Love the show. I'll tell you what I like about Swan is that they do support that auto DCA, auto withdrawal, and they'll auto withdrawal to an XPUB so you can use a new address for every auto withdrawal. And then if you're using Sparrow on the other end, of course, you just would label all of those as Sparrow, or I mean, as Swan transactions, so you know they're all KYC. Yeah, I think that's a great service. And River offers a real kind of similar competitive service, but not with the XPUB publishing, although River does offer Lightning. So I think River is another one in that kind of camp if you want to do a DCA and you're okay with KYC. So daily cash average, which means just reoccurring buys is pretty much how the Bitcoin community uses that. And then, um, you know, something that lets you automatically get it off there. So that way, if there's ever an issue at the company, you don't have to worry about it because it's already in your wallet. Yeah, those are great features. And I think if you're going to use a KYC service like that, Swan is definitely making it easy for you to take self-custody without going through additional hoops. That seems like a great set of features for, you know, Bitcoiners who are all about self-custody, but, you know, are not ready to jump through all the hoops to get non-KYC Bitcoin. True Grits boosts in 5,000 sats. Ah, I really appreciate the special shout out. Hope to meet you both at Linux Fest Northwest. Well, we appreciate you, True Grits. Yeah, appreciate the ongoing support, Grits. Another ongoing booster, Obby1984, comes in with 8,000 sats using Fountain. In the early 2000s, when I first started using the Obby1984 username, I didn't think about how it would be make me stand out later. I was just trying to find a variation of Oppie that wasn't already taken. After multiple attempts, I tacked on 1984 on the end since it's the birth year. Uh, it was available, and I went with it ever since. Uh, I even went so far as to buy the domain. Don't go there. It's just ramblings of a moody and depressed 20-something. It really needs a new compave. 
So that's the quick and dirty of my apparently notable username. If 17-year-old me had only known, glad it's not seen as a nuisance. Honestly, uh, that's kind of a lingering fear for me and a bad experience with the podcast host I had years ago publicly giving me a hard time about my email address, which was fun. Interacting with you and JB and podcasting 2.0 boost, though, has definitely helped me move past that incident and start re-engaging with the shows I love. Thanks for everything and keep it up. Wow, that's really a Wild West early podcasting story where a podcast host doxes a listener and says go send this person angry emails god yeah well that is a shame and you're such a you're such a great participator too they really they screwed the pooch on that one that i mean that had to have been like some sort of very contentious linux conversation right yeah or my goodness you know if you wrote in during one of the you know system d debates or netware and microsoft or novell and and zeus and microsoft all teaming up like i mean there were so many contentious things back in the day that, yeah oof oof at Halleck boosts in 10,000 sats, not saying it's directly related to the 200K call to action, but RoboSats picked a nice week to struggle. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate the consideration <laughs> as always, team. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I had that same same experience. It's like, I'll pick up a few. Oh, and I went over to Stacker News. Oh, it's going to be down for like days. You know, it happens as they grow, I suppose. Uh, thank you, though. Uh, you know, we're we're trying to call out to the goal because in our minds, we're trying to we're trying to think of a number that we could see that we feel like, OK, it was worth it was worth all the work and it was worth the amount of time and, and energy and hardware infrastructure that goes into the episode. And I don't think 200,000 is it, but I think that's a good starting spot for us, at least emotionally to see like, OK, people are recognizing the value course with episode 100 coming up it's always a great chance to pop in if you haven't for a while bob b came in with six thousand sats i have recovered my umbral node yay i still have to figure out how if i want to handle lightning channels or just use albi your pointer last week on the app tool helped me narrow down the issue to a docker problem i nuked the local dash kv.db file which got docker up and running again i just had to re or uninstall some of the umbral apps to fix the broken ones thanks nice work bob Look at you fixing container problems and running custom scripts that vendors make. You're in IT now, buddy. Appreciate the boost. What is this local-kv.db Docker file? Are you familiar with this, Chris? I mean, not off the top of my head. It sounds like it sounds like it was something that Docker had created outside the Docker environment. And when he got rid of it, it kind of like set things back to basics. I don't, you know, there are, Umbral does have a like reset everything back to basic process and then restore on their form. But it sounds like Bob got there on his own. I'm actually really impressed. Man, that is fantastic. Well, good luck with figuring out if you want to be a lightning node or not. That is no it's a question we always ask ourselves. Yeah, no judgments. <laughs> we also had some boosters come in under the limit, which I think is 2,000 sats. Is that correct? That our, our Is boost, it now? Is, is it, it now? Or was it 1,000? Okay. I can't remember. I thought it was 1,000. I thought it was. But for 100, we should make it 2,000, maybe. Because uh, Faraday Fedora came in with 1701. Uh, he says, not so much a financial constraint keeping me from making the Linux Fest Northwest. I have to travel for work the week before. And I think I think I told my wife she had to take care of the toddler for another three or four days solo. She'd probably spend those days plotting my demise. <laughs> I feel you, man. Obviously, your toddler needs to come to Linux Fest Northwest. Yeah, I have brought my young kids, three young kids, for many, many years. There is things there for kids to do, and it is pretty family-friendly environment. We had uh, 12 total boosters this week. Thank you, everybody. And the show reached its goal, 219,602 sats. I'd love to see us crush that for episode 100 coming up next week. But thank you, everybody who boosts in. If you got some value from the show or the discussion or made you think about something, consider sending a boost. We also love hearing your thoughts, questions, even, um, let's say, patch notes. 
send those in as well. Get a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, Castomatic, all of those seem to be really popular with our audience. And of course, you can keep your podcast app and boost from the web if you get Albi at getalbi.com. You top that off with anything on the Lightning Network, RoboSats, Cash App, and then you just boost right in from the podcast index. We'll have all that linked in the show notes. Thank you so much to our boosters and emailers. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pond recorded on September 8th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.